Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I asked my friend what's worse, ignorance or apathy. He said, I don't know and I don't care. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from doo-wop legend Kenny Vance. That'll help break the ice. Later in the show, he tells us about the time he opened for the Rolling Stones during their first U.S. tour. Also, we chat with beloved and controversial advice columnist Dan Savage about his new book, American Savage. See how he did that with his last name there? That's pretty clever. Also coming up, we hear from Jordan Vote roberts director of the new movie The Kings of Summer, Australian sextet Alpine share a new song, and Jessica Walter, a.k.a. Lucille Bluth from the TV show Arrested Development, answers your etiquette questions. But first up, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Congresswoman Michelle Bachman will not seek re-election. The FBI is examining a letter addressed to the White House for possible signs of poison. A Chinese meat producer plans to buy the U.S. meat company Smithfield for $4.7 billion. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is deputy editor at the new food and culture magazine Modern Farmer. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at dinner parties this weekend? Well, I'm going to be talking about a new book that came out. Unfortunately for me, it's in Spanish, and I can't mm. read or speak Spanish, but okay. I think I still can enjoy it because it is the Tacopedia. Oh, um, oh it's a reference book. Of tacos? It, it's like the world book of tacos? Some people spent five years in Mexico mapping out the tacos that happen regionally. Oh, man, best job ever. Yeah. So is this a, is this a website, Tacopedia, or is this going to be a physical book? No, this is, this, is a, this is a print book. Okay, because um, that makes sense, because otherwise, you know, they might be in danger of having taco leaks, <laughs> which, you know, people <laughs> give away the blueprints of the perfect fish taco. <laughs> So you can go to jail for this that. This is probably more secure, is what I'm saying. For yeah, yeah. But it's just like I mean, it's just an overview of every single kind of taco. I mean, I can imagine it's a huge country, and you know, tacos are malleable. Yeah, I'm looking at a list of um, everything from flying ant tacos. What? Um, <laughs> um, Wait a second. Wait, flying ant tacos. By definition, you would need a lid for those tacos, <laughs> so that would make it a burrito or a quesadilla, like a flying ant quesadilla. I can understand. You just rip off the lid and eat it really fast, <laughs> exactly. or you're just eating basically a tortilla after a few seconds. What other tacos? Well, in Baja, we've got lobster and bean tacos. Wow, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Do they recommend places um, to buy the tacos or where to eat them? I believe so, although I have not seen the book. What I have seen is some illustrations from the book that break down the taco specialties by region. But I mean, you guys, I'm going to have to spend a few years. I'm going to have to do a Spanish immersion course. I um, understand. Rosetta Stone. Tacopedia is sort of a life-changing sort of book, yeah, you know? Sure. And then you can write the Heartburn Thesaurus. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Rayhan Harmanzi, <laughs> thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a washing machine that rinses your clothes with booze. For that fresh spring break feeling. Uh, We start with the history part, though. Right around this time, back in 1980, the world got its first glimpse of the most famous yellow circle since the sun. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Toru Iwatani created a man for the ladies. 
See, Iwatani was a video game designer, and he noticed arcades were mostly filled with dudes. Not surprising, back then, most games involved shooting stuff. Iwatani thought he'd make a game that appealed to the gals. Now, for whatever reason, he figured gals especially liked food. And when he saw a pizza with one slice missing, he was inspired to create Puck Man, a cute little chomping pizza chased by cute ghosts, cutely devouring dots and fruit. On May 22, 1980, the first Puck Man game was installed in a Japanese mall, and it did okay, but Iwatani doubted it would sell in America, where cuteness wasn't cool. Wrong. The Pac-Man is the most popular of the new video games and amusement houses. There are Pac-Man t-shirts, and now there is Pac-Man music. The game became the biggest hit in arcade history, with girls and guys. And the only thing that changed was the name. When U.S. distributors realized vandals could change Puck into another word, and called it Pac-Man instead. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it, I'm talking with Kentaro Wada. He is the bartender at Bar the 15 in the Shiba Park Hotel in Tokyo, birthplace of Pac-Man. And Kentaro, what drink did that inspire you to make? Um, this cocktail, I called it Pac-Man. Very appropriate. Yes, Mr. Iwatani. I was inspired about the story how he, he got the idea of Pac-Man from pizza. You got the idea from the missing piece of pizza, that's yes. right. So I, was, I wanted to describe like pizza. So it's like a pizza drink? Yes, fresh pizza drink. <laughs> yes. What? So what is in this thing? That is, What is the pizza-like element of the drink? Like a pineapple and um, basil cheese and um, black olives. The, there's pineapple, cheese, basil, and black olives in this drink? Yes, basil and vodka. Vodka is just for... Um, Cocktail, making cocktail thing. <laughs> yeah, right. You need to have some actual alcohol in it. Yes, to, to call it cocktail, you know? <laughs> yeah, of <Yes>. course. <laughs> and uh, is that it? And uh, I have orange juice. Okay, maybe because there is an orange the Pac-Man eats in the Pac-Man video game? Yes. It's like the and, special bonus fruit. And also, this cocktail's got a big ice ball. An ice ball? Yes, ice ball. It doesn't melt quickly, so you can take time to drink. It keeps the drink cold longer. Yes. Also, so, it kind of looks like a big power pill Pac-Man eats to make the ghosts vulnerable. <laughs> Does it actually taste good, is I guess the question? It has, you know, cheese in it. Um, I didn't put cheese in it. I have Parmesan cheese garnishing rim. Oh, so almost like salt in yes. a uh, margarita. It's, yes, it's like margarita style. And um, it's actually really simple. Really? How so? It's got so many ingredients. But um, it's easier than making pizza. Yeah. <laughs> and, Brendan, I want to urge folks to check out the recipe for that drink on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Okay. Because it's really not as weird as it sounds, although it does require making a tennis ball-sized <laughs> orb of ice. Okay, that know. part's weird, but yeah. if this pizza cocktail works, college kids are going to be so much more efficient. <laughs> That's true. Had not considered. No more cumbersome meals. More time for Xbox. (laughs) 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest is Jordan Vogt-Roberts. He directed a slew of short films and comedy videos for Funny or Die before bringing his debut feature to Sundance to much acclaim. Here he is to tell us about it and to share a seasonal list. My name is Jordan Vogt-Roberts. I just directed my first feature film called The Kings of Summer, which opens this weekend. The movie basically picks up on the last day of school. Three teenage boys, outsiders, run away to the woods and build a house uh, to escape from their family life that they think is really terrible, when in fact it's not. One thing that was really important to us was really feeling the sensation of what it would be to be free in the woods. I hope that the movie sort of elicits those feelings about summer and about that freedom. And here are a couple of the things that remind me of summer. The first thing on my list is Thin Lizzy's Jailbreak, the whole album. The first chord just instantly elicits this feeling of school's out, it's done. The context of it, whether it's escaping work, school, family, actual jail, like it almost doesn't matter. Tonight there's gonna be a jailbreak. Somewhere in this town See me and the boys, we don't like it So we're getting up and going down You know, it's this thing that was almost larger than life when I discovered the music. I remember being on the playground, you know, when I first heard those songs and someone saying to me, you know, the lead singer's like six foot nine. He's from Ireland. He's black. And he is the son of a sailor and a prostitute. Like, that just blew my mind open. It's a type of mythology that's lost with the internet now. You just look something up immediately and it'd be so disappointing if all of those details aren't the case. But I think that whole album is just perfectly representative of summer and being your own man. Put on that, kick back, have a beer. It's great. Number two, look, Stand By Me, Goonies, incredible summer movies, right? Incredible movies just about youth and freedom. Jaws, so palpably summer. No shortage of great movies that I could name for my number two. But a very quintessential summer movie is Bad Boys 2 by Michael Bay. I say that because it is the excess of summer movies in a perfect nutshell. It takes place in Miami, right? And Miami is constantly summer because of the way he shoots it. Just sweat is dripping off people. You can feel the heat. And people drive around in fancy cars and girls are constantly in bikinis and look like models. You know, it's that cranked up unreality. But he's so upfront about it. And I love it. I love the earnestness of it. So there's one scene in the movie where the bad guys are throwing cars off of another car and a Porsche is dodging it. But it starts in the hideout of this Haitian villain with white dreadlocks. When Will Smith and Martin Lawrence break in the door, he just proclaims like, Who that? Who in my house? I'm the devil, who's asking? The devil is not welcome here. At its core, it's about going and getting into trouble. I think there's also just something very flippant about the idea of summer when you're young. Like, it's about making dumb decisions, and <laughs> what are you gonna do? My number three is The Legend of Zelda, 
the Ocarina of Time. The video game for the Nintendo 64. So much of the movie to me, The Kings of Summer, is about trying to hold on to that sort of childlike wonder. And Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Zelda, his inspiration for that game was just going out into the woods when he was a kid and just imagining things. You know, imagining caves and imagining trolls and things like that. I could play that game in fall. I could play that game in space. And it would still make me feel like it was summertime. Even in a crappy Nintendo 64, poorly rendered landscape, it felt limitless. It literally would be near impossible for me to obsess over a video game or a movie in the same way I was able to do when I was a kid. Because you just don't have time for it. But when you're a kid, you're allowed to make those things your world. And that's, that's so exciting to me. Guest list from Jordan Vote Roberts. His film The Kings of Summer comes out this weekend. Enrico, Jordan told us while we were recording that that yeah. he would sometimes play Zelda for 48 hours in a row in the summer <laughs> just because he could. Wow. <laughs> to yeah. paraphrase my parents, what an excellent use of fine weather. He's blue. <laughs> On that note, folks, we are going to take a quick break. But coming up, sex columnist Dan Savage tells us about his penchant for action sports. And that is not a euphemism. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we learn how to live better through karate, and doo-wop legend Kenny Vance remembers the Rolling Stones. We had heard that they played instruments, and that really wasn't cool. It's a long time ago. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week, it's writer Dan Savage. Since 1991, he has penned the nationally syndicated sex advice column Savage Love. He also hosts the podcast Savage Lovecast. Along with his husband, Terry, he launched the anti-bullying It Gets Better campaign, and his new book of essays, American Savage, came out this week. When we spoke, I started by asking him how he ended up in what he calls in the book the advice industry. Uh, I actually stumbled into it. I met Tim Keck, who was one of the co-founders of The Onion. That's right. He invented writing about BS in the AP style. (laughs) And he was moving to uh, Seattle, Washington to start a new newspaper called The Stranger. And I just said, oh, you should have an advice column. Everybody loves advice columns. And he said, that's excellent advice. I want you to write the advice column for a newspaper. Were you a reader of advice columns? Yeah, I grew up reading Ann Landers and Xavier Hollander, uh, The Happy Hooker, and Penthouse Magazine which I would steal from my older straight brothers and read. I would read the articles. <laughs> You're one of the few people who was honest when they said that. That's great. Absolutely. And, and listening to my mom, who was kind of the Dr. Phil for the neighborhood when I was a kid. And I just sort of stumbled into it. It was going to be a joke. The idea was I would be this gay guy giving sex advice to straight people. Yeah. And I would treat straight people and straight sex with the same contempt and revulsion <laughs> that straight advice columnists had always treated gay people and gay sex with. And it turns out that straight people liked being treated with yeah. contempt. It was a new experience for them, and the column just took off. And 22 years later, here I am talking to you. Um, you've, you've been doing this now for 22 years. How has that industry changed in that time, do you think? There's been big changes. It used to be, you know, writing a sex advice column like mine, uh, that you did a lot of referrals and definitions where someone would say, what is a 
and they would name a certain sex toy and you would describe it and how it works or what is this – how do you perform this particular sex act? Now every sex toy and sex act has its own wiki page. (laughs) So you don't get those questions. The referral is Google. Go to Google, please. Yeah, absolutely. Google took a lot off my plate. And so what I get now is almost all situational ethics. This is what happened. This is what I did. This is what was done to me. Who's right? Who's wrong? What should I do next? Mm. And those questions are more complicated and harder to answer than just, yeah, this is what a (laughs) is and this is how you work one. Uh, Get that on NPR. So you kind of had to adapt your breadth of knowledge, I suppose, to tackle those kind of questions. Absolutely. And it, it's been it's been a real struggle <laughs> with my Catholic education. You Did know? you take a philosophy course or some sort of psychologist class or something? No, I didn't. Uh, I have a theater background and I studied history also. And <laughs> Perfect. Um, it, yeah, it kind of set me up perfectly. I'm always really gratified, though, by all the psychologists and shrinks and sex researchers who are huge fans of my column and my podcast who are always writing me. And telling me that, oh, you, that was the, just the right thing to say. That's what I would have said. And I'm like, golly, I, I should have been a shrink, apparently. Thank, thanks for saying golly. <laughs> I, spent the more, I had breakfast with the Mormon. You know how it is. You, you, kinda, you pick up on their lingo. Um, well, I mean, but where do you get that wisdom? I mean, it was in, it's interesting. You use terms in this book like, I am more likely to grant permission to cheat than any other advice columnist. What gives you, you know, I ask this sincerely, like what gives you the background to give permission to do anything to anybody? <laughs> well, you look up advice in the dictionary and it says opinion about what could or should be done. Literally, the only qualification you need to give advice is some fool asked you for it. <laughs> and people ask me for it and I give it to them. Um, there are some taboos in the advice industrial complex. Things you're never allowed to say are okay. You're supposed to toe this sort of line about ideals, particularly around monogamy and infidelity, that I, I find unworkable. And you do write about this in, in the book. There's a, a chapter that's actually caused a lot of controversy called It's Never Okay to Cheat Except When It Is. You want to defend that sentiment? You know, when I say sometimes cheating is okay, people picture you know, newlyweds in the first few years and a small child at home and somebody cheating and exploding everything and ruining everything. Yeah, right. Now, what I mean is, you know, I get letters from people who've been together 25 years and 15 years ago, one or the other of the people in that couple decided they were done with sex, never were interested in much in the first place and now are done with Mm. it. And it's not always the wife. Sometimes it's the husband with the low libido who's just done with it. And the other partner, after 10, 15 years of sexual rejection, is going insane But they have small children or they have teenagers. They actually do love each other. They have a partnership. They're economically dependent on each other. One is dependent on the other for their health care. And they want to know what to do. And I look at that situation and I say, you know, all of those things have to be given more weight than sex. That if the missing piece for this person to stay in that relationship and continue to love their partner and be loyal to them in every other way is that infidelity that makes staying possible – (laughs) cheat, don't leave, don't divorce. But I don't smile on serial adulterers. I don't smile on, I call them CPOSs in my column, which stands for cheating piece of S. Yes. Yes. Cheating piece of S. Uh, They don't get a pass, but there are certain circumstances. All right. Obviously, we could debate the ethics of this for the rest of the show, but we have plenty else to say. By the way, I want to ask you, do do people just kind of open up to you about, I want to know what a dinner party is like for you when you meet strangers. (laughs) Do people just sort of like randomly open up to you and just start telling you the most shadowy details of their kinky sex lives? Uh, Yes, they do. And it's a horrible burden. Um, (laughs) I'm very actually kind of shy and retiring and, and a little squeamish. One of the things that's brilliant about the column is I don't have to look at the people who oh, are writing me. That's true. So I have this distance. But, you know, somebody sitting with me at a dinner party who starts unspooling something, I have to picture that person <laughs> doing what's being described. And that's not always pleasant. 
I've also had cases where people have literally been, I have a sore on my genitals. Can you take a look? Uh, What? I'm not a doctor and we're at dinner. This is why you did the podcast. So you can just listen to people. You don't have to ever see them. Right. Um, (laughs) All right. Let's ask you two questions that we ask everyone on the show. The first one is, and I really want to hear what this is. What question are you tired of being asked? What's the strangest question you've ever gotten at Savage Love? I get it every, all the time, everywhere, every day. And that's like asking a New Yorker, what's the skankiest pigeon you ever saw, the bustedest <laughs> drag queen you ever met? They're it, all skanky and busted. Not they're all skanky, just there have been so many skanky pigeons, <laughs> so many crazy questions. I just can't recall the one that like was burned into my brain. All right, here's a, the second question. It's kind of the reverse of that. I'm wary of asking you, of all people, this question. <laughs> Tell us something we don't know. Um, I'm a really good snowboarder, which is, is a strange thing. You know, I'm a musical theater, uh, you know, mama's boy, homeboy. My parents had eight-track tapes of all these Broadway shows, and I memorized them all. <laughs> and I didn't play any team sports, and I wasn't athletic. And so I am, like, the least likely, what's up, dude? Let's go hit some powder. <laughs> Uh, human being on the planet. But at age seven, my son, who was a skateboarder already, decided he wanted to learn how to snowboard. And then that wasn't good enough that he snowboarded. His dads had to snowboard too. Well, did they have to? You didn't. It doesn't sound like you put up much of a fight. Oh, I fought. I had to be dragged up the mountain. I hated it. And then I somehow did it once. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. (laughs) And now the only difference between me and everybody else snowboarding is everyone's got their headphones on and their earbuds. And they're listening to rap, and they're listening to God knows what. I am literally coming down the mountain listening to Gypsy. <laughs> if Mama was married, I'd live in a house. As I carve. If Mama was married, we'd live in a house as private as private can be. And Brendan, I don't know. Maybe it's because I grew up in a theater family, but I think this could make sense as snowboarding music. I think it is because you grew up in a theater family. I don't. It's <laughs> trees and clouds scrolling by. It's bucolic. That sounds more like ice skating, you know? All right. In snowboarding, you wipe out. You're going to need something like Sabbaths to help you through that. <laughs> that is true. Maybe we could compromise and go with the Tommy soundtrack. You could crash pretty good to Pinball Wizard. All right, we'll give you that. Thank People, you. People, uh, we'd like to hear your favorite music to be injured by. Please. Uh, we're on Twitter. Tell us at Dinner Party DNLD. If Mama was Time to eavesdrop. Kenny Vance discovered Steely Dan, booked Prince and James Brown on Saturday Night Live, and scored movies like Eddie and the Cruisers. But before that, his doo-wop band topped the charts. They opened for the Beatles' first U.S. show and for another Brit Invasion band. This week, we overhear him tell that tale. Hi, I'm Kenny Vance, and I was in a group in the 60s called Jay and the Americans. And uh, we were uh, basically emulating vocal bloops. Groups like the Moonglows, the Flamingos, the Drifters. And when I told her I didn't love her anymore. We had a lot of hit records because that was what was popular at the time, vocal groups. We were on Shindig and Hullabaloo, those TV shows. And then we got called to open the show at Carnegie Hall featuring the Rolling Stones their first ever show in the United States. You know, we really didn't know who they were. We had heard that they played instruments and that really wasn't cool. (laughs) Cause groups that played instruments in those days were, you know, guys who played in the Holiday Inn. So we really didn't think too much of it. 
I don't think I've ever told this story, but the truth is, when before we would do a show, we would put pancake makeup on. It was like, you know, really cool. And so when I was backstage with the Rolling Stones, we shared the dressing room. And Brian Jones comes over to me and says, hey, mate, what's that? I said, it's a sponge. So he called over Mick Jagger, and the two of them used my sponge and put on pancake makeup before they went out to do the show. So we opened the show wearing alpaca sweaters and turtlenecks and tight sharkskin pants and doing steps and everything. And the crowd knew who we were and they liked the songs. They were hit songs. And then the Rolling Stones came on and, you know, they're wearing sweatshirts. Dungaree, you know, was like, what is this? And of course the girls and the whole crowd at the Carnegie Hall went crazy. There happened to be two shows that night, so the disc jockey comes backstage and he says to us, by the way, he says, you guys got to close the second show. We said, we can't do that. We can't follow these guys, and we didn't want to. He said, if you don't close the show, there's going to be a riot after the show. He figured he'd buy himself some time. So after the Stones closed their second show, we came out, you know, doing those steps. We were doing steps. Caught on me, and uh, the audience was getting up and running out. Must we say We finished the song, and we looked at each other, and we walked off the stage. The audience had cleared Carnegie Hall. Those oldies but goodies reminds me of you. I don't know how the other guys felt, but the writing was on the wall. In a certain way, it was like we needed to really start to rethink some of the things that we were doing musically. I thought to myself, I better get a guitar. <laughs> the songs they were playing, I never will forget. Musician Kenny Vance, his new group, Kenny Vance and the Plano Tones, are on tour in support of their latest album, A Cappella. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from, from, from American Public Media. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled by an expert in a particular topic. Today, the subject is living fearlessly, and our teacher is Susan Shorn. She is a writer and a martial artist. She holds a double black belt in karate. For the past few years, she's written a column about women in fighting for McSweeney's Internet Tendency. And her first book just came out. It's called Smile at Strangers and Other Lessons in the Art of Living Fearlessly. Susan, this this book is basically a memoir about how you started practicing karate. Can you tell us about how you were before you discovered karate? Okay. Well, it's um, not a very flattering thing to do, but um, people didn't always feel safe around me back then because I was not um, 
I was not a very patient person. Yeah. And I had a lot of anger and a lot of frustration that I didn't always channel in uh, the most productive ways. Why not therapy and medication? <laughs> Those are expensive. Um, <laughs> okay. Therapy and medication actually work very well for some people. And I, I, I have a therapist I go see about once a month and he tells me to calm down. But what really attracted me to karate was that it spoke to a lot of things that I enjoyed doing, whereas therapy and meds aren't usually a whole lot of fun. Um, mm. It let me, it gave me permission to to commit violence, which for me, <laughs> and this is not true for everybody, but for me, that's really yeah. the primal connection to karate is that kind of, ooh, yeah, that, that felt good. Um, but at the same time, it makes you really question the violence that you're committing, and it makes you really feel the consequences of it. So there was a very, there's sort of a cost-benefit balance to it that I found very appealing. Uh, so the book is about how the art of living fearlessly. Is it possible to live fearlessly? Probably not. I don't think it would be wise to live entirely fearlessly. Fear is a very good... <laughs> yeah, we'd all be jaywalking and eating cheeseburgers. Absolutely, so... <laughs> yeah. Not a good idea. <laughs> so what do you mean by this? So what are, what are some of the lessons you learned in karate that can help you live close to fearlessly? To live less fearfully, I guess, might be a, go. a good way to say it. Um, one is that it's a, not only is it okay to make mistakes, it's really healthy to do it. And in fact, it's sort of necessary in order to, to grow and move forward. So mm. the fear of messing up is really something that, uh, that you can dispose of. It's, it's a waste of time and a waste of energy. Um, I think also the idea of, um, you know, I'm, I'm a very sort of private and somewhat shy person. My friends will laugh when I say that. But um, the need to connect with people was that was a very important lesson for me that I'm I shy away from you know, meeting new people and it's it's nerve wracking for me to do that. But it turns out that making connections and networking and having relationships with people is one of the safest things you can do. And that's how we increase hmm. safety at both an individual and a community level. So that was a really important lesson too, is learning how to work and play with others. So when I when I was reading your book, I'm thinking this is exciting. You seem to um, conquer some of your fears, some of your anxieties. But then I'm thinking I am not into fighting and yelling and punching. Am I screwed? Right. Is that part of the of the training of karate? I mean, you really need the physical part to balance out these larger lessons, right? I did. I don't. I don't think that's necessarily true for everybody. I think there are concepts that are inherent to the martial arts that are very useful to people if you can get at them without the martial arts practice. Looking at conflict more strategically than we usually mm. do, or the idea of claiming and enforcing boundaries, which is what a lot of the formality in martial arts is about saying. Here I am, I'm standing here, this is my spot, and I'm going to defend it. You do that at the beginning, the end of every kata, for example. And that's something that I think people, um, we don't think about in our daily lives very often. One of the activities I, I write about in the book is uh, at a self-defense class that Sensei Suzanne, my teacher, taught having a say no to one another. And so that's a question I like to ask people is, when is the last time that you said no to somebody, really said no, and you made it stick, and you weren't smiling, or you, know, you didn't apologize for it? But do you have an example? When's the last time you said no to somebody? I think the last time I said no was when my girlfriend told me it was time to go to work this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I say no a lot. I, say, I probably said let's no on the subway this morning when someone wanted to okay. take my seat. You live in New York? I live in New York, I think you get yeah. more practice in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I say no all the time. That's good. That's, I think that's very healthy, and I think people, I think especially women, should do that more often. Well, I want to end on um, one of the, the kawas, one of the proverbs that you start one of your sections with. And, and you put these in your own words, and, and this, is, this is how you phrase this. Don't be afraid of the dark. Grab darkness by the throat. Kick it in the a**. 
push it down the stairs and laugh at its haircut. <laughs> can you can you talk about that? One of the things that I've learned about fear and my own response to to fear and fearfulness is that we give it so much respect and so much weight, and it really doesn't deserve that. Um, mm. That it's really important to to puncture the kind of myths that we've built about our own vulnerability and about the scary things that are out there. It's really important to go and find out what we're really afraid of. Um, and engage with it, and we'll often find that it is not the, the immense um, problem that we thought it was. But do you have to laugh at its haircut? <laughs> well, if it's really dark, you, I suppose you couldn't see. Enrico Susan is now a teacher at Sun Dragon Studios in Austin, which is the dojo where she learned karate. And that's cool. Actually, I was wondering, what do you get after Double Black Belt? You know, like, is there a higher... That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe, like, cummerbund? The... Like a... <laughs> exactly. Corset would be a right. good one. Black corset. Yeah. Folks, coming up, we meet a friendly French frankenfood, and Jessica Walter, a.k.a. Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development, tells us how to behave. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, I fail to taste the mutant pastry that's taking over New York City. Uh, and later we hear a new track from Australian pop band Alpine. You're sure they're not Austrian with that name, Alpine? <laughs> no, they'd have to be classical then. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's like but Austrian law. Weird. But first, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to answer your etiquette questions. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is actor Jessica Walter. She is a seasoned stage actress, having starred in dozens of acclaimed Broadway and off-Broadway shows. She was nominated for a Golden Globe in Clint Eastwood's film directing debut play Misty for Me, Creepy movie <laughs> and she currently stars as two of the juiciest characters on tv that would be spy chief mallory archer in tv's archer and the monstrous matriarch lucille bluth on arrested development new episodes of that cult favorite became available this week on netflix after a seven-year hiatus and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you so much. So you've talked in the past about how people think you're you're like Lucille Bluth, but you're nothing like her in real life. Yeah, she's she's uncensored, shall we say, and, and she likes her drink. Well, I think I'm nothing like her. Some friends of mine might, might differ. <laughs> I know. Well, differ. do you feel like in a way you kind of vanquished Lucille Bluth and now you're introducing her again into your life? Are you are you concerned? You know something? When I'm not concerned because luckily I think Lucia was one of those villains that people love to hate. Oh yes. Mm. And the reason to me, having played mostly villains in my career, is you have to find that vulnerable spot that the person has because everybody has one. Uh, maybe Hitler didn't have one. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody else. And I honestly think even though Lucille has just a dreadful time getting along with her children. <laughs> That she Slightly. really does love them. She really yeah. loves them. She she just doesn't know how to, you know, show it. This is a good question, though. You you know, you seem like a perfectly wonderful woman. Why? What is it that seem? other people are? What do you mean but, seem? Well, I've just met you. <laughs> You're not old pals. Is there a doubt? <laughs> Go ahead. No, it's okay. After your role in Play Misty for me, where you basically stalked a radio personality, know, we're, we're a little wary of you. That was a great role. Um, but what do you think it is that people see in you that, you know, leads them to cast you in these roles that are nothing like you? You know, there's typecasting. I really think that typecasting goes on. And mm. I think that, you know, 
even before Play Misty for me, when I was really, really young, I, one of the first movies I ever did was The Group. Okay. And I played, you know, the vicious Libby with a, a scar for a mouth. You know, a big red <laughs> scar for a mouth was the description. And I oh, just wow. started to get those roles. And honestly, I'm grateful because you don't want to be Miss Vanilla Ice Cream, little ingenue. <laughs> You know, yeah. and everybody else steals the scenes. <laughs> I think I'm blessed to get these roles. All right. Well, look, you've demonstrated that you can, you know, misbehave or be mean on screen at least. Right. So uh, we're curious to see how you're going to handle oh. our audience's behavior issues. So okay. <laughs> our first question comes from Jimmy via Facebook. He writes, my wife and I are expecting our first child and she is in the process of planning the baby shower. My mother and grandmother are not exactly in the best terms, yet mm. we want to make sure we don't cause a fiasco when it comes to sending out invites. Should we include my grandmother in the invitation process? Duh. <laughs> Come on, people. No, you're right. I mean, actually. of course you have to include granny, but mm. you have to talk to her. You have to tell her, Grandma, this is not about you. This occasion is for my wife and, and myself I and see. the baby to be. You know, you, I don't know how old Granny is. I mean, but that's the thing. If she's ninety, how you can't talk sense yeah. into Grandma. Yeah. Why do you give Grandmother the, the? Why do you talk to Grandma, and not Mom? Yeah. You know, you have a point. <laughs> the thing is, though, it's you're talking to Mama's is, boys here. Oh, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think you have to talk to both of them. And I think your point, your first point, is the right one. It's about wife, really. Yes. It's not about Mom or Grandma. Mm. So whoever you have to talk to to kind of get them on good terms. They have yes. Bottom line, Jimmy, if Mother is in her title, though, she must be invited. Yes. That's about yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is something that we got via the web from someone who calls themselves Just Wondering. Uh-huh. Just Wondering writes, I know you're not supposed to have a favorite son slash daughter, but is it okay to have a favorite son-in-law? Mm, you know, I, I personally, first of all, Lucille, my character, has, you know, four kids. She only has one son-in-law. Okay. I just realized that. In my real life, I only have one son-in-law, and I'm thrilled with him. He's wonderful. So there. Okay, but what if? But what if I hated him? I would not let him know because I'd want to be on good terms with my daughter. That's true. So That's it's okay point. to have a favorite, but just don't tell anyone. Yes, and you know something? I believe everybody has favorites. They just don't want to admit it. Oh, wow. man. Is you that know, true? You know, Lucille had a line in the pilot of our show, of Arrested Development. She said, I love all my children equally. And then a scene later, she says with a martini, I don't care for Joe. <laughs> so there you go, you know. There you Let's go. Just be real, just wondering. All right. So we have another question. This one comes from Thomas in Flat Rock, Michigan. He writes, my family is absolutely driving me nuts with their poor conversation skills. Their stories are more, you know, he says, and mindless repetition than actual information. Should I just give up or is there some remedy for this? Who is this person that said? Oh, Thomas. Thomas, I, Thomas, I agree with him. You know, it drives me crazy the dumbing of america you have mm -hmm. anchors on television there was one last night a local here in new york it was something about and this was the bon mot and the guy said this was the bon mot i couldn't <laughs> oh, believe really? it i mean things <laughs> like TV that anchor? the anchor really? and, and things like that happen all the time especially you know we have our little channel 12 oh i shouldn't do, say this they'll come and bomb my house but our little channel <laughs> oh uh 12 in westchester they're always mispronouncing things or it's like so i said like and and there was like this that that ain't right people Jessica. don't have conversations anymore everything is technologically done kids hmm. learn math with calculators they don't i still count on my fingers if you ask me how much is 6 from 14 i go Set with my fingers. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, eight. Uh, 
there's some. Now you that's know, good conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Way to spice it up. Trying to tell me how boring that was, but here's the thing too. You know, everybody emails. They don't write letters. They only connect that, via machines. So of course they don't know how to converse. So should Thomas just give up and start a new family, or <laughs> let me let me think about that for a Put minute. Put up an ad on Craigslist. Just send him off to college, perhaps. Give him something to talk I don't, about. He should say we're going to have times every week, days where you can't use the computer. Mm. You have to actually talk to people and yeah. and you know start getting those skills back. And they're going to text him back, LOL, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See you around Christmas. <laughs> oh my God, that is so sad. Um, here's a question from Alex. He writes us via. Facebook. Is there a way to tell a grandparent they are being offensive, i.e. racist or homophobic, without offending them? What is this with grandparents with you people? I know. I mean, yeah. I, I'm about to be a grandparent. Well, we told them that Lucille was going to, you know, be, going to be on the show, oh, and I think that okay. kind of... Yeah, because she is a grandma. But I will tell you that recently my aunt, who's 92... I know she's not listening because she's stone deaf, <laughs> but she... Let's talk about her. <laughs> I love her. She's wonderful. Oh, that's nice. But she's, you know, from another era, and right in front of her wonderful aide, you know, she has an aide yeah. during the day, okay. who is an African-American woman. My aunt was talking to me and saying, well, you know, so-and-so was so awful because their daughter married a black man. What? And oh. here is this wonderful woman sitting there, and I was so stunned. I couldn't say anything, and I went home, and I said to my husband, I said, you know, I can't let this go by. This is... Yeah. So I wrote her, I wrote her an email, I, I, you know, because she, she's deaf, she, I can't talk to her on the phone. I wrote her an email, and I explained that she probably wasn't aware of how offensive that remark was to this woman who's sitting right in front of her, whom For she you, yeah. adores and loves. I want to Should say, I be telling all these? <laughs> no, this is this what is if real. She gets her hearing back. This is real conversation. <laughs> so, and don't worry, she's not getting her hearing back. Oh but we do send God. transcripts of our show. I have to tell you, she is great. Uh, she's great. We're not going to send that part. She just, you know, was old. Too late, Jessica Too late. Morgan. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you so much for having me. Jessica Walter, a.k.a. Lucille Bluth of TV's Arrested Development. You can catch new episodes of the show on Netflix. Jessica also does the voice of Mallory Archer for the animated series Archer on Adult Swim. Both of which shows feature people behaving badly. And if you suspect people are doing the same in real life, where it's usually not as funny... Tell us about it via dinnerpartydownload.org, and perhaps we will have the problem addressed by an actual celebrity. That's right. Nice. Or you can call the DPD hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554. That's 213-621-3554. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, we've been doing this segment for a while now, mm -hmm. and we've seen our share of hybrid foods. Of course. Right? We've seen lasagna cupcakes. We've seen sushi Ritos. Yeah. Dorito Oreos. I don't remember seeing those. That was actually a dream I had, I think. <laughs> All right. I wonder what you were doing before you had that dream. Uh, anyway, rarely has there been as much hubbub about a new food fusion than for the cronut. Yes. It's a half croissant, half donut pastry created by renowned chef Dominique Ansel. He introduced this thing a few months ago, and it's been chaos ever since. People wait in line for it for hours. People cry when the day's supply runs out. They flip off the counter people. Wait, are they, are they made with OxyContin? Is that an ingredient? <laughs> I, he didn't list that as an ingredient when I spoke with him earlier this week. Uh, but I did ask him how he came up with the idea for this delicious fusion food. The cornet was just in the beginning an addition to replace another of the items, which was a pistachio sticky bun. 
was just to replace it. I, I didn't know it was going to take off like this and people were going to go crazy, literally, <laughs> for it. Uh, I like to come up with like new ideas, new things to do, new things to like to try. And uh, I think that uh, donut that meets a croissant was a fun idea. The croissant is a classic Viennoisois, uh, right? Viennoiserie. Viennoiserie, okay. I'm, thanks for your help. And what does that mean, a viennoiserie? What defines that sort of pastry? So the word viennoiserie is coming uh, from uh, Vienne, which, which is Vienna. Mm -hmm. So what defines viennoiserie is really some breaded items, some layered. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of a bread, but a little bit like lighter, flakier. And then what would a donut, or would that be considered in pastry? Yeah, I would say donut would be in the viennoiserie family if he was French. Okay. <laughs> You, you know, are a celebrated pastry chef, classically trained. You've been doing this for quite a long time, since you were 16, right? Since I was 16. So I've been working in the kitchen for about more than 20 years now. If, would any of your old masters in pastry be offended by the idea of the cronut? I think they'll be questioning me about, like, why? Why do you do that? That's very, like, unusual. I don't think, like, any French person will even, like, go there, try to fry a croissant, because it's not, not appropriate. But, you know, like, I like to be open-minded to see, like, different things and try different things. And why not? I try it and it tasted good. Yeah. It tasted good and people think it's amazing, so why not? And you tried 11 different recipes, correct? I tried a lot of different recipes. So if you take, like, just a, a classic croissant you might, like, find a lot of issues. The butter will melt when you try to fry it. The layer will slide off. The fermentation will not be right. There's, like, many, many, like, different technical aspect mm -hmm. that might occur to this dough when you try to fry it. Mm -hmm. So it's actually not exactly a croissant dough, but it's very similar. And so when did you, did you know when you, hound, when you had it? Like when you got to that 11th time where you're like, voila. <laughs> I was not like voila, but... <laughs> what would you say when you were excited about something? Oh, there you go. We're here. <laughs> we're here, baby. <laughs> All right. So when did you say, we're here, baby, we got it? I walked the recipes like time after time until... I really had what I want to have. So I want to have like the layers inside were so, so important to me. I want to see like still have the effect of a croissant, which was like many, many layers. So I've also read that these cronuts have only have a shelf life of six hours. Is that true? That's true. It's actually a, um, a matter of fact for most of the Viennoiserie items and bread as well. So growing up in France, you learn, quickly learn that any bread, any croissant have a, has a shelf life that is very short. I'll say six hours because I think that's like reasonable for me. Most people will keep a croissant for a day or two. I don't suggest it. But with the cronut, you have not had that problem because they have not even stuck around for more. You sell out within 15 minutes. Is that, is that true? We sell out between like 20 and 30 minutes now. Before we open the doors, we have about 100 to 200 people outside. How, how does it feel to kind of see people outside your door? I mean, it feels amazing. Uh, to me, the satisfaction of being a chef is really to give pleasure to people, to excite them, to give them something they've never had, to see the expression in the eyes or like in the face, the smile when they eat something and they really feel that it's something they've never had before. But the people aren't always smiling satisfied. They're also grumbling, right? When they, when they haven't, when you ran out of cronuts, there's been cronut rage. <laughs> yes, that's true. I think a lot of people get emotional because they really want it. They see it everywhere. They read about it. They hear about it. And they get so, so excited. Um, to me, like food is based on memory. A lot of people uh, rely on what they, they were eating when they were little. So 
taking something that people know, like a croissant, a donut, and fusion it together, make it exciting because they, they know what both taste. So people get very emotional when they cannot get it. And a lot of people have been asking, why don't you make more and why, why don't you hire more stuff? The thing is that we're not a corner shop. <laughs> we're a French bakery. We have lots of great items on the menu. Yeah. And I don't want to compromise all of those items. Yeah. I want to make it enough to satisfy people that comes early in the morning that really wants it. But I want to keep the quality over the quantity. So I want to keep the integrity of the bakery. Usually I end a food segment by tasting the food item, but the cronut is so popular that we are cronutless. Is that true? We are cronutless for today. <laughs> I'm not even a journalist. I'm just a crazy guy who pretended to be when they get a cronut, and it didn't work for me. I'll try to save one for you. <laughs> Man, Brendan, it sounds like our whole scam of doing food stories to get free food has been discovered. We're totally busted, my friend. Sorry it had to be on your watch, man. That's well, awful. I wasn't the only one who was left craving cronuts that day. Okay. Apparently, earlier, Jimmy Fallon's people and Anderson Cooper's staff called in orders. I'm yeah. serious. And Dominique politely turned them both away. Oh, no. So if CNN suddenly does an expose on the health risks of cronuts, <laughs> we... we'll know why. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. But don't be sad. You can stay in touch with us all week via Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of the Dinner Party download. Tamika Adams, Davy Kim, and Brittany Martin are our fearless interns. Ravi Carmen and Bill Lance gave us engineering assistance this week, and Peter Clowney is executive producer. And now, before we go, we want to leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from your week's dinner parties. Alpine are a six-piece band from Australia, not Austria. Whatever. Yeah, they would have to have 25 members if they were... That's a lot. Austrian, yeah. They've been building a steady buzz in the internetosphere, and this month their debut album came out. It's called A is for Alpine, and here's a song from it called Gasoline. Bon Appetit. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And Rico, I picked up some Doritorios for you on the way to work. Th- they're real? Yeah, eat as much as you want. They're healthy. Hey, Rico, William Shatner's original costume from Star Trek just arrived. <gasps> for me? Wow. Rico. Rico. Oh. oh. Rico. What? Wake up. We got to finish this show and stop chewing on the microphone. But I don't want to.